Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome to Paddling the Blue. Today we're going to sit down with Stig Larson. Stig is the president and co-founder of Level 6, and he's going to share his story of traveling the World Cup slalom circuit. He's going to tell us the real story of how Level 6 got its name and share some insight into technical wear design and a little bit more. So Paddling the Blue is coming up on its one-year anniversary already, and it's been a great ride. It's been a lot of fun interviewing fascinating people from all over the globe, and I really look forward to continuing bringing you stories. Don't worry, we're not going anywhere. Um, I'm having too much fun with this, and we've got several guests lined up for the future. So by the way, thank you to those who've emailed me with your suggestions for guests. Definitely keep those coming. You can reach me on the Paddling the Blue Facebook page or at john at paddlingtheblue.com. Well, I've been thinking about how to celebrate this first year, and you're going to hear a little bit more about how you can participate later, so I'll keep you in suspense for now. Enjoy today's interview with Stig Larson. Hi, Stig. How are you today? Good. How are you doing, John? Excellent. Excellent. Thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate it. So, Stig, tell us a little bit about how did you get started paddling? Uh, that, I mean, that's a good question. My parents were both super active in like canoeing and kind of outdoorsy stuff. And when I was in grade seven... They had like an outdoor ed program. Every October, there was a big, it's called the October Sleepover Camp. And I'd go out and they would, the whole grade seven class would go. Whoever kind of shone in that kind of activity, they got hand selected by the teacher at the time to go on a seven day canoe trip in Algonquin Park. And so I got selected in grade seven. Usually they take all the grade eights and then a couple of grade seven kids who stand out. So I did that. And the teacher, his son, was a kayaker and he had a, a old yellow plastic kayak and he kayaked the river while we were canoeing and then the evenings at the different campsites i would just play i kind of got into trying out his kayak and playing around with it and i totally fell in love with it and then that summer i started going to a place called palmer rapids here in ontario and just you know, going out for a weekend camping trip and you go kayaking and it's a super safe place to learn. And that's how it all started. I think I was 12 or 13 when I first started. So you started uh, started there. And then out of all the disciplines, what drew you to slalom? Well, Palmer Rapids is really close to quite a famous kayaking school called Madawaska Canoe Center, MKC. That summer, there was a, they had like a, their annual race. And I entered in the novice class, which was kind of the bottom part of the course mostly like I would say class one and I raced that race course and I won it and I thought oh my god this is incredible honestly that was the starting point and then I just got obsessed with it and I started training and I started going to different training camps that were put on by the by the province and Whitewater Ontario and I started racing more and more and more you know going from the novice category to the junior category I didn't win all the time but I certainly did quite well as a young kid and yeah, that, that's kind of what really started for me. So was that your first race in your first season? I think it was the second summer that I, I started kayaking. And the second summer I did that novice race. My parents got me uh, an old plastic R7. It's kind of, that was the, the plastic boat of the moment back then. <laughs> that, and I guess the, you know, you saw the Perception Dancer was out quite a bit too, but the R7 was a bit more of a sleeker version. 
So a lot of people had that. Then I just got the bug and I went from that boat to a plastic Mirage. And then I went from that to my first race boat that Gary Barton from Upstream Edge used to make. And uh, yeah, I didn't look back. All right. So you grew up as a racer on the World Cup circuit, uh, racing in Eastern Europe in the late 90s and early 2000s. Tell us a little bit about that time. Yeah. So, I mean, the dream, of course, is to be on the World Cup circuit or on the national team. So when I was a junior, I was on the national team. But to make that transition from junior to senior is very, very difficult, as you can imagine. You know, 19, 20 year old up against people who are 25 to 30 you know, with extra five to 10 years experience. So a lot of people would go down to Costa Rica and they would train down there in the off season because you got to train with a lot of, you know, a lot of the Europeans would go there. It's, it's a friendly competition. The World Cup circuit, for sure, you're going head to head against your peers and other countries. But in the off season, it's a, very much a learning with your peers experience. Uh, going down to Costa Rica, I trained with a bunch of other Canadians and some Germans and some Slovaks and some Czechs. And we... Uh, that next spring, I came back and I made the World Cup team and got on an airplane and we flew to Europe and we basically living that lifestyle of being in a car, driving to a race site, training for the week, racing the weekend, packing up on the Sunday, driving across the country to the next race site and on and on and on. And it was incredible. Cool. Now, how long did you do that? Uh, seven years I was on the World Cup team. So now what were your favorite races? Um, that's a good question. You know, they're... It was around that time that it really went from natural rivers to artificial courses. And coming I mean, as North Americans, we didn't have any artificial courses. You know, there's, there's not a lot of money in slalom in North America. And so we would train down in Dickerson, which was down in Maryland, D.C. And they had a, it was a, it was a runoff of a, um, a electrical plant. So the water was always warm. And the club down there had done these, you know, concrete mounds to make it somewhat artificial. And so for me, going to Europe and seeing these race sites like in Bratislava where there's a conveyor belt that took you from the bottom of the river to the top again and you could just do laps after laps was incredible. So I would say probably some of my favorite race sites at the time were Bratislava and then Augsburg, Germany because it was just, it was just so new and exciting. It was just so geared towards spectators. Tell us a little bit more about the, the courses themselves, how they're designed. And- yeah, I mean, they've, they've certainly changed over time i mean one of the american who is you know world cup champion multiple times over scott shipley he started his own company designing slalom race sites and what's coming out now is a lot more of a naturally feeling artificial course where back in those days it was you you poured some concrete uh you put some pillars in and you hope for the best so there was some really weird things happening with the water like water does really weird things when it's forced to do something that's not natural I guess you'd be paddling down the river and the hardest part about it is you think you're going exactly where you're supposed to go and all of a sudden, a second later, you're five feet the wrong direction because that's just how the water had pushed you. It's not, it's not used to going through this concrete uh, spillway. So I, I think what I liked most about that was just the fact that it's, I don't know, it's always, you can't memorize it. It's a, it's a challenge every time. So how about some of your least favorite venues? <laughs> this one's going to be, uh, this would be a hard one for a lot of my European friends to swallow, but I would say my least favorite venue is Borg St. Maurice in France. And I only say that was be- is because it was my first World Cup race in 1997 and it was flooding and it was a, they had brand new, re- redid some of the rocks and the court, it was insane. It was survival 
at its finest. Like just try to get down the course. I remember being there on training day and watching one of the Italians, C1 paddlers, who was you know top 10 in the world, almost die on the bottom half of the course because he was stuck inside his boat after he got flipped over. He flipped over and pinned up against rocks. It's just, it was just it was one of those weird feelings of going, this is not where I want to be right now. So it's not that it was a, um, a bad course, just that it was just brutally challenging, huh? It was just insane. And, and since then, they've actually changed it. They've toned it down a bit. Um, but it was, it was flood water. I mean, when you're racing on the river, there was, if you can imagine, there was boulders tumbling down the course underneath the water. So you'd see this hump of water tumbling down the course as you're racing beside it. All you hear is the chunk, chunk, chunk of the rock. So it's real dynamic. I mean, it's actually changing yeah. underneath you. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So each so, run yeah, is going to be something totally different. Yeah. And I think that was, probably, I would say that was probably my least favorite World Cup race. But I mean, it's a beautiful city or town and a beautiful river now, but it was, it was my least favorite at the time. So what are some of the non-racing challenges that you faced? I would say poverty for sure. Like you are flying to Europe with zero money. You are sleeping in the side of the by in a campground usually Canadians would be camping and then all the Europeans would have hotels and I just remember waking up in Augsburg and the British team they'd roll in with their sprinter vans the athletes would train for the morning they'd come back and the a table would be prepared for them and they'd have their breakfast and some lunch and then they'd have a physiotherapist session and they'd go train again whereas the Canadians we'd wake up in the morning we'd have some cold cereal we'd be in our tents we'd have to get the dew off our paddling gear. We go for a session, come back, try to make our way downtown, get some lunch, um, and then come back again. So I would say the, the lack of funding was a big one for us, but you do it for the love, right? That's it's, it wasn't, you don't, you definitely don't get into sport for money. So is that kind of relate back to, you mentioned there, you know, no money in North America for, for slalom, but money in Europe. Yes. I mean, I was, sport is very well funded in Europe. Uh, Olympic sports, especially in Canada, and Olympic sports are well funded now, but it's it's nothing compared to what is really required in order to eliminate some of those things I just talked about. Now, near the end, of course, um, of my career, there was more money coming into the sport. You know, we we would have hotels covered, uh, and we would have a, a coach and a, and some support staff, but nothing compared to you know what of our our you know our European counterparts. So then that happens at the end of your career. You're like, where where was this before? Where was this in the beginning? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think there's a there's an obsession with medals. Olympic medals is is the obsession with sport. People really tune into sport once every four years. You know, the you know, the, the mass populace. Other than that, though, it's just a kind of a it just happens in the background. In Europe, you know, they tune into sport every day. In Europe, you're a sportsman. You you define yourself as a sportsman. In North America. You do sports. You know, I, I'm a skier. I, I run. I'm not a sportsman. I'm not a competitive skier. But in Europe, if you define yourself by what you do, which is really interesting because, you know, there's just, there's just that much more publications around it. There's that much more competition, which, of course, there's that much more TV viewership and there's that much more money. So what are some of the untold stories of what really happens behind the scenes on the World Cup? <laughs> you know, um, just, I guess just imagine a bunch of young, well, 20 to 30-year-old young adults in a foreign country trying to blow off as much steam as possible between <laughs> race runs. And that's really where it comes down to. And I mean, I have friends that I made along the way that are lifelong friends, and the memories that were created are incredible. 
But there's a, there's a lot of winging it over there. Back in 98, 99, Eastern Europe was not what Eastern Europe is now. And I remember going to race sites in Poland and you know Czech Republic where it wasn't just around the major cities. It was it was a good five or six hours outside of the major cities and you know one telephone booth there's one supermarket there's grass growing in the middle of the highway it's it's just really surreal but also amazing to see how the whole world functions any uh, any political challenges with uh, that area of the world and crossing borders and such that you ran into no i think i would say that's one thing that i always thought was was amazing over in europe is that um if you are really, I mean, if you're into sport and they know you're at that caliber, everyone is very, very open to helping you. You know, they want to be part of it. They want to see you succeed. And being a foreigner in their country, it's also amazing because they, they want to show you what they, what they have and what they do, which I always thought was very cool. I mean, we've, we had the rental car stolen in Bratislava before. Like, things like that happen, but I wouldn't say it ever left a negative taste in my mouth. I mean, you forget how lucky we are coming from you know, Canada, especially, I would say. We're well taken care of, care of in, in this country. And you found the folks there very welcoming as well in terms of uh, welcoming outsiders in. Yes, for sure. They, you know, they, they, know, they know there's a race in town. They know there's a World Cup happening. And they're just happy, they're excited to see all the different nationalities. A lot of kids would come down and just get to meet Canadians or Americans or even people from you know Spain or, or Eastern you know Eastern Europeans don't necessarily get to see all of that back in back in ninety seven ninety eight. Now it's completely different. Now I mean you go to a race site there now and it's 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 like being in a downtown Toronto. It's just it's incredible. Now have you been to any races since uh, since you stopped competitive racing? I haven't. Unfortunately, with level six, we started level six when I was 24, and I was just kind of starting my World Cup circuit stint. And when I finished racing, it was kind of it was a conscious effort for a couple of reasons. One, level six had got to the point where it really couldn't just be a part-time thing. If we were going to do it, we really had to buckle down and and put the effort in. And as starting anything, it takes it's all encompassing. So. I've gone to Europe multiple times for work and for trade shows. I've never gone back to a, a World Cup race, mostly because the summertime is when it happens. And in the summertime, I'm usually no, over here in North America. Not even as a spectator. No, I mean, I, I think I've done the, I've done the Gull River like in Minden before as a spectator, but this is not the same. So during your career, you, you and a friend founded uh, Level 6, like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Like many early outdoor companies, I know the story involves a lot of perseverance and time selling shirts out of the back of a van, and I'm certain that that happened for you as well. But the question I want to ask is the name Level 6. So how did that come about? I understand there's quite a story there. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, as with all, um, all things, they start with uh, maybe a couple too many drinks with <laughs> some young people. <laughs> but we were, so I had just finished university. And I and a buddy of mine, he was in one of my classes, we bought a 1972 VW van. And we were hell-bent on surfing the entire Pacific coast down to Costa Rica. So we took a year and we drove out to Vancouver and we surfed from Vancouver all the way down to Costa Rica. And the goal of being in Costa Rica, of course, is all the Europeans would come there in the wintertime and they would train so I could be there and basically live for $50 a month in uh, the town called Turialba, where the, where the training site was at the time. And a lot of the other uh, Canadians flew down in February to meet me. And so 
on the weekends, we'd always try to hit up the coast to go surfing and you know, burn off a bit of steam, live that kind of beach lifestyle before we came back on Monday to our training regime. And we were at this surf bar and uh, my my soon-to-be business partner, he was wearing this old Eddie Bauer uh, pajama shirt. And when I say we were living in squalor, like we were living with a cow in our apartment building. <laughs> and it, it, it was just myself and one other person in the beginning. And then by the time the season ended, there was about eight of us all on mattresses on the floor and a cow would walk in, drink out of our toilet and then leave again. <laughs> it was, it, it wasn't pretty. Nobody so, thought anything of it. It's just, oh, the cow's here. Yeah, that's cows here. Not a big deal. And so there was a bunch of surfers from Germany there, and they had this level five, there ain't no higher rave shirt. And that was back when raving was a really big thing. And they wanted to trade Tyler for his Eddie Bauer pajama shirt. So perfect. It was a nice, it was a cool lime green shirt. Super cool. So they traded. And then about an hour or two later, they wanted to trade back. And, um, we were, of course, because his shirt just reeked of, of not being washed for six weeks. <laughs> and so uh, we, we just went, there's no way we're not trading back. And the, uh, of course, you know, classic, you know, 24-year-old bar fight happened. And we were a bunch of us were soon-to-be national team members. Or we actually were national team, but not World Cup team. And so we were pretty big. And the bar fight happened, spilled into the streets. And um, luckily, we won. And we kept the shirt. And so the next morning there was a coffee shop like right outside the break in this town and we were out surfing. And also luckily we were way better surfers than the Germans. And so we would surf by them having their coffee because kind of the way the break works there is that you can get really close to shore. And we surf by, we say, ah, oh, level six, man, that's so much better than your level five. And uh, it just, <laughs> for some reason it just stuck and of that crew down in Costa Rica, I would say, let's say there's 10 or 12 of us. I, I would say seven or eight of us made the World Cup team that summer. And for and whatever reason, level six became the catchphrase of, of doing something incredible, like a, you know, the best race run, you know, the best training session, the best whatever that summer. So we'd always talked about, you know, well, we also around that time, you know, we we're all obviously surfers. So that whole surf culture, um, has its own branding and apparel. And we had talked about, you know, how could we, there's nothing in, nothing that kind of correlates into kayaking. And we always wore surf shorts when we were racing. And so the I concept, I was like, oh, well, we should really start our own brand for kayakers or for water sports. And I asked, you know, some of our friends, what should we call it? Like, well, you got to call it level six. I mean, it's so obvious. That's how the, that's how the name was formed. <laughs> but I mean, years later, people still think it's gear for class six whitewater, but I mean, the best of the best, which, you know, it's flattering as well, but th the real story is, is that bar fight, um, in Costa Rica. <laughs> so now, uh, did you ever see those, uh, the, the German paddlers again, like on the world cup circuit? So yeah, these weren't paddlers. These were just German surfers. They were just, oh, okay. They were just some surfers from Germany that would come over and just and surf there for the, for the winter. All right. So level six, you've got a pretty wide product range. Um, you started as a lifestyle brand, surfwear for kayakers, and then you branched out into technical wear and well well beyond that over the years. Um, how did you make that jump? You know, I was not a, I'm not a clothing designer. I'm, there was no structure or real methodology to our starting level six. It was two guys going to Industry Canada, slapping down some money, registering our, our business, we had no business plan. We had no money. 
My mom loaned me $8,000 to start it. I paid her back after three years. We went to Montreal. We bought some fabric on one of the leftover fabric mills, and we just started cutting and sewing. I mean, there was no, I wouldn't say we, we had no structure to what we were trying to do. Looking back on it now, it's crazy that it worked, but I think it worked because it was, it was all encompassing. So as far as us branching out from day one to, you know, 24 years later, we certainly always wanted to be a, a light, we want to be a brand for paddlers. We wanted people to see level six on a piece of clothing, go, hey, you must be a paddler. Not a whitewater paddler necessarily, but a, a sea kayaker, a paddler of, you know, recreational boats, you know, stand up paddle boarding now, of course, is all into it too, dragon boating. That was how we kind of envisioned the brand from the beginning. Basically a billabong, that what billabong has done for surf, we wanted to be that for paddle sports. So what was the first product that you made? We made, uh, I mean, I think the, the very first thing we made was the classic, some t-shirts. Uh, we had a launch party. I think we spent more money on beer than we sold in shirts. <laughs> but uh, we, yeah, we made some couple cool logo t-shirts and you know, we, our first foray into screen printing and we had a party for a bunch of our friends and we sold some shirts for 15 bucks. And at the end we were like, this is awesome. From that, it turned into two men's shorts and two women's shorts, a board, like surf shorts. And that was, that was early on. That was probably that first fall we did that. And that was our first kind of foray into buying fabric in Montreal, finding, you know, thread and logos and, you know, stitching the logos on and lacing up the shorts ourselves. And then that next summer we, on the World Cup circuit, we, every race site we had, we had a box of garments and we opened the trunk up and we sold whatever we could. I'm picturing you sitting at a kitchen table sewing up a pair of shorts. Yeah, yeah, right. that. And, and, and the, I think the funniest one was we were, as we were getting more and more direct to consumer and starting to sell to retail stores, there's a whole world of, I guess, structure that the retail stores require, you know, labels and hang tags and pricing sheets. I just remember us sitting around, a kitchen table, kitchen table four of us, just like, stitching on hang tags and stamping prices on them and writing on what they were the size and the and the uh <laughs> the gender on each of the different content labels but so do you still have one of those shirts one of those first shirts i do yeah one of those shirts and i have <laughs> one of our first pair of board shorts as well that um it was like a, a corded material like a like corduroy polyester and people still love it that's cool yeah that's cool so there i know there's there's got to be more to the design process than looking good although of course you've got to look good so what are the some of the functional aspects of design for technical wear that the average consumer like me just wouldn't even think about for me it's always been about the materials and the fit those are two things that I i think for to stand out in this world of fast fashion just ad hoc stuff that's kind of slapped together you have to really go deep on the materials. And when you, when you, I mean, in the beginning, we certainly, we were, we only could take what was available to us. I mean, as a, you know, the, the really high end good fabrics are really only available when you start having some significant volume. So for me, it always starts with materials. How do we get those materials to work to, to the needs of the paddler? And then from that point on, it comes down to the fit and finish. And I've always hated baggy, untailored clothing. So when we come out with our designs, we're always trying to look at ways to make sure it fits best when you're wearing it, as well as doesn't restrict your range of motion. 
So I think even when our, our first dry top that we made, Scott McGregor, who owns Rapid Magazine, did a review on it. He said, you know, the level six dry top fits like a perfectly tailored dress shirt. And I would say that hits home still to this day. We are patterning and repatterning, trying to make sure that everything we do is there for a purpose, minimizing our waste, and then the fabric is exactly right for the, the end user. So you started this company and you had it rolling. At what point did you say, all right, I know that level six has legs and, and this thing's going to keep going? Yeah, it's, it's funny because it was pretty early on and um, there was a store in Ottawa called Top of the World and it was like the only the cool brands like Volcom, Billabong, Quicksilver, Roxy at the time, they were, they were in that store. And I remember meeting the buyer and showing the line and then putting in an order of our apparel. And I remember going back, so that was, that was in the morning and then I had to go back for a training session in the afternoon and I got the call saying they were gonna buy the line. And I remember laying down in the grass by the pump house, which was our training site, looking in the sky, going and just having that tingly feeling that like we've made it. Like this top of the world is carrying our our line. We have made it. And this is probably only year three or four in, so we had a long way to go. But for some reason in my mind, it just justified the fact that we could be in the most trendy skate shop in Ottawa and stand neck to neck or side by side with the, the major US brands. So at that point you were literally and figuratively at the top of the world. Yes, <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> so how do you name a product? I know you're, you're, it seems like a lot of your products have a person's name or you know, something to that effect. How do you come up with the names? Yeah, it's, it's actually a, a group effort here in the office. We, we were, the, of course, in the beginning, you know, not thinking long-term. We were, you know, naming it whatever was funny at the time, like the Chachi or the Fawns or the Hero. <laughs> and then we started, you know, as we, as obviously, as, as you grow and you become more mature as a company, not necessarily as an owner, but certainly as a company, you become kind of make it more mature and more, more understanding for the buyers of the retail stores. We started naming them more as a series. So we're kind of on a kick right now, like the Odin and the Freya, like Norse gods for some of our, um, our really high-end dry suits. And then a lot of our touring stuff we name after, we try to name after you know different lakes and rivers and water features in North America or, or Europe, like the Fjord for one of our dry suits, uh, the Baffin, Australis and the Borealis. We, just try to, we try to make it so it's very Canadiana if possible, um, because that's really who we are. We're super, super true to our roots here as a Canadian company. So what are you most proud of? I think honestly, probably most proud of the perseverance. I think you know you get dealt a lot of difficult hands in the garment industry, and I think it's how you can take that and turn that around. Um, even in the well darkest depths of any type of running any kind of business with staff and inventory and manufacturing, being able to really pivot and and make things work still, even though it looks like it's all going to fail on you. I think I would say that I'm probably most proud of right now. As far as a, as an item, there's so many things that we do right now that are just so cutting edge. Like we have an incredible team of designers right now and it's just the stuff that we're working on even for 2022 is so incredible. But 
I would say, yeah, it's, honestly, John, it's hard to put one thing down. I'm super proud of everything that we're doing right now. Excellent. I would say that a good thing we're doing now, which we, we've always tried to do, but we've really locked it in because of our retailers understanding that this is important to everybody, is we've really minimized our waste. Um, everything doesn't come in poly bags anymore. Um, it's all wrapped with scraps of fabric and tied recycled boxes for you know our new dry suits for next year coming in a recycled cardboard box versus plastic and just things like that i think are really we're kind of i wouldn't say leading the way but we're certainly putting our best foot forward in our industry we talked before off air um, a little bit about social equity and you know making sure you're taking care of the environment and taking care of paddlers and you know that being conscious of the environment is certainly an important piece you had also uh, told me a little bit about a scholarship program that level six runs yeah, I think it was about three or four years ago we started this. And it's one of those things that, you know, you see there's a lot of barriers to entry, I think, in a new sport. Uh, paddle sports, for sure, you know, there's, there's maybe a bit of fear from the water. You know, there's some equipment you have to get. And you have to actually get to a location if you're not lucky enough to live by the water. And so we decided to take all the money that we were giving our pro athletes and we circled that back into a youth scholarship program. And so we select uh, as many kids as we can possibly get, and we send them off to kayaking schools that are close to their area. We partner with a bunch of incredible schools, and they get to spend, sometimes it's a weekend course, sometimes it's a week-long course, and they get to spend the week learning how to kayak, which I find, I mean, it's obviously it's kayaking has given me so much. I would not be where I am today without that sport, 100%. I was a... A child who was probably very unfocused, <laughs> for sure. I, I was an ADHD child, and I think just kayaking gave me that connection to something that I, I know there's a lot of other people who are exactly like me out there, and allows them to kind of fall in love with a sport that can take you a ton of places. And it's and it's also a lifelong sport. It's a sport you can do until you're 80 or 90 and still enjoy it. Especially for someone that. And I don't know about you, but um, you know myself, I was never a ball and stick sport person. It just wasn't my thing. I wasn't very good at it. Uh, but being able to find other sports that, that I was good at and that I enjoyed and that I could find people like myself who you know, had the same philosophies um, was, was an important thing. You, know, you were able to find that and turn it into your life's passion and turn it into a business as well. Yes. Yeah. And I, and I think even to this day, there's a local river close to us. And in the spring, you know, a couple of the people from the office, we head out and we just do a hour and a half run down the river and you honestly you feel so good even though it's class it's like class two maybe yeah it's a it's a class heavy class two and it's just it's just fun to come out and just you get back in the office and you just feel so refreshed so um i'm going to step back to the design for a minute you had mentioned you know things you're working on for 2022 and made me think of something else how far out do you design we are usually 18 months ahead and then for more technical garments could be even two years ahead because there's a lot of testing that goes in involved in that so for a new dry suit we're probably two years ahead of when it's the launch is going to be so we have a for example we have a new sock design coming out for our dry suits for 2022 and we have been prototyping that for probably 13 months already and it won't go into production until next fall and so you'll people will see it in spring 2022 because you just have to make sure, you know, we, we make samples and we send it off to our, our most extreme abusers in um, our, our pro team and ambassador team. And we just see if they can, if they can destroy it. And if it survives a year with them, it would survive 10 years with a regular user. 
So what's your paddling passion these days? Um, I still do whitewater. I, I, I'm a bit of a jack of all trades right now. I was out east last year and I took the family sea kayaking at Bay of Fundy and it was awesome, like incredible. I have a, well, she's, she was six at the time and we had these tandem sea kayaks and the swell was coming in with the tide. And I just remember paddling with her back to the, the, the put in and surfing these huge swells and her just screaming and just <laughs> so happy with that spray of water on her face. So sea kayaking, a lot of stand-up paddle boarding, of course, because it's so easy to get the whole family involved. And then whitewater for sure on the Ottawa River. And in the springtime here in Ottawa, there's some pretty good surf waves. I'd say those are my three. I don't do a lot of wreck paddling, just you know, sea kayaking, whitewater, stand-up paddle boarding are the, th- are the three. I've only ever done one real expedition, and that was... We did the middle fork of the salmon as a raft support trip. I think that was five or six years ago. And that was incredible. Like that kind of being in the middle of nowhere, canyon walls, completely untouched. That was that was probably the only one I've ever done that's been a multi-day of any kind of sort of paddling. That's cool. Tell us about that. Yeah, it was one of those ones where a bunch of industry professionals, uh, Tom, who owned Shred Ready Helmets, it was a canoe kayak magazine guys, one of the buyers from MEC, anyway, a bunch of a bunch of people who we had known from the industry, and we had booked this four night, five day, middle fork of the salmon trip. One of those small outfitters where it's you know really hands on, and we put in and it started raining, and I forget the number on the gauge, but the what this is probably my dumbest paddling adventure too. Now my my wife ever hears that she's gonna lose it, but it was uh, the water. I think it went to eight on the gauge, and it was there was trees that are about a hundred feet long floating down beside you. All the other rafting trips had pulled off, but all of us were really confident kayakers, and we all had planes to catch. You know, classic hindsight twenty twenty is not. You know, we had planes to catch the next day, so we had to get off the river, and so we ran this thing, and it was insane. Probably some of the biggest whitewater I've ever run, and the you know the consequences were high. Uh, swimming you know, eddies were full of logs. There was no room for error. So I would say that was a pretty incredible trip in the fact that, yes, it was super risky, but also like the scenery and the, the land out there is just, it's, it's so beautiful and remote. And you're here to tell about it, so. Yes, yeah, I certainly, <laughs> I would never wish that upon anybody. And was, we all, we, I see the people that I did the trip with a couple of times since then, and we talk about it and we're like, guys, we were idiots. Like we should have just skipped our flights and, and just gone home, but Tom from Shred Ready, he was an ex-slalom paddler. You know, we all knew what we were doing, and we all could we were we could still certainly get to where you needed to be. We were this is not this was not a, a novice a group of paddlers. What advice might you have for an aspiring racer, somebody who's thinking about getting into racing? I think you got it. You got to do it for the love. You have to really enjoy it. I saw so many people who were those seven thirty workouts in the morning when it's minus ten. If you're not in it to love it. You're never going to make it. I think that probably goes true all the way through. You have to love it first. And if, if you love it, then everything else is easy. And that's probably a good life lesson for anything. You know, if you, if you really love what you're doing, it doesn't seem like work, and you become successful at it, for sure. And we spend far too much time doing what we do as a, as a profession to not enjoy it. So you, you better enjoy it. And if you don't, then find something that you do. Yeah, and I think if you're, I mean, if you love it and you want to be at that caliber, which is 
Something else that I find very incredible, what your body can do. If you are training twice a day, six days a week, you become so in tune with your body and the river. I mean, I go back to paddling now and it's almost, it's almost embarrassing for me to paddle another river because I just, you're so out of touch with what I used to be. It's also much more relaxed and it's not, it's not high intensity, but it's, uh, I think if you, for people who want to get into it, you have to really, really be ready for that kind of sensation as well, because it's something you're, you're never going to, you're never going to want to give up. Well, now you can hit that, that heavy class two that you were talking about with a big <laughs> smile on your face and, uh, yeah. and just truly enjoy yourself not have to worry yeah. about competition. Just get out there and just have fun. Yes, totally. And that's what it's all about now for sure. That's cool. So uh, on another vein, what advice might you have for somebody who's thinking of starting an outdoor company? You know, I think it's the same. It's like you got to love it. You you cannot wake up in the morning going, oh, I got to go to work today. You have to be so obsessed and into what you're trying to create against all odds before you even get out, get out of bed in the morning. And I'll say even to this day, 24 years in, I wake up at 6, 6.15, and I'm itching to get to work to keep on pushing this ball forward. So I, it's, it's got to be about that. And I think also people always ask me, you know, is it, oh, is it about the money? You know, it was never about the money. It was about creating something that was a legacy and that was perfect as, as perfect as it could be at the time. And I think if you think about it that way and people will appreciate what you're putting into it, well, of course, you know, the money comes, but you can never, ever think about the money being the sole reason for doing anything. Always follow your passion. Don't follow the cash. That's right. hundred percent. All right. So I'm going to transition a little bit here. So I'm coming up on the one year anniversary of the Paddling the Blue podcast, and we've got a little contest that we're going to unveil for listeners and level six has stepped up to help out. So thank you, Stig, for helping out with that. Hey, you're welcome. Yeah, for our listeners, um, here's how you can get a chance to win some, some cool level six gear. So starting with this episode and for the next three episodes, you'll find a question somewhere in the episode that you need to answer. And that question might be about that episode or it might be about another episode. If you've got the answer, send it to me by email at john at paddlingtheblue.com along with your name, your email address, and your mailing address. Each correct answer is going to go into a random drawing toward some level six gear. Now let's dig, uh, introduce that here in just a second. For listeners, you've got until February 28th, 2021 to get your answer to me. And we'll announce the winner on our March 15, 2021 show. And each answer can be sent to me. So there's four episodes, four questions. You can get all four in, and then you'll be in the drawing for four times. So Stig, um, like I said, you've agreed to help us out. So tell us how, uh, how you're helping out. Yeah, so we're going to be giving the, the winner a $100 gift card towards whatever they want on our website. And I mean, the 2021 stuff is launching probably mid-February, so you'll be able to see what we've been working on for the past you know, 18 months. Grab what, look what you want, send us an email, and we can get your gift card passed off to you, and we'll ship it out to you right away. Fantastic. Thank you very much for uh, for your support, for Level 6 support, and I appreciate you joining me on the show today as well. Um, for listeners, so today's question, we're going to throw a softball out to you uh, for this one. The question is, where did the Level 6 name come from? So that's today's question. Where did the Level 6 name come from? Send that to me by email at john at paddling the blue, along with your name, your email address, and your mailing address. We'll get you into that drawing uh, and go from there. 
So I think there's one final question that I like to ask all of our guests. And that question is, who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? I would say, you know, one of our ambassadors, Chev Dixon, he is down in like the Yonkers, New York area. And he has had a pretty incredible, I guess, growing up in the sport of, of paddle sports. Um, he's teaching kids down there. We support actually their paddling club through some raffles, that raffle dollars we sent them. Yeah, he, he would be a really good person to bring on. I think he had an interesting perspective on paddle sports for him and paddle sports where it's heading. Because he works with a lot of people who I wouldn't say are the, you know, the, the average person you would see getting into paddle sports, which is, which is fantastic. All right. I will reach out to him. We'll see if we can get him on the show. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Stig, how can listeners reach you if they have any questions for you? Yeah, I mean, they can email me directly if they want. I mean, stig at level6.com or through any of our social media feeds. If, if you say, hey, I want to talk to Stig, I mean, I'm, I'm in the office every day. I answer the phones when everyone else is busy. So I'm pretty easy and pretty easy to reach. So that way is probably the best. You can go on LinkedIn as well, but I'm, I'm not a professional LinkedIn user, so, so I don't answer as quickly as I should. <laughs> all right. I'll make sure I, uh, I get all the, the social outlets for, uh, for Level 6 in our show notes as well, so folks can, uh, can reach out to Level 6 and reach out to you if they got any questions. Again, Stig, thank you very much for Level 6's support in our one-year anniversary contest, and thank you very much for joining me on, t- on today's show. It's been great learning from you, hearing a little bit about the World Cup circuit, and uh, hearing about your history and Level 6's history. So thank you. Hey, thank you, John, for having me. It's great. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, Power to the Paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or whitewater, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit paddlingexercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. I hope you enjoyed Stig's stories of life on the World Cup circuit and the founding of the company Level 6. The outdoor industry really is full of companies from your local shop to manufacturers who are in it for the passion, building something cool around their kitchen tables and making a positive difference. And Level 6 is definitely no exception. Their youth paddling program is pretty cool and it's a great way to give back. And who knows, one of those kids might be in Stig's shoes in the future. This has been a great ride, and I can't believe it's been a year already. And see, I told you, exciting news, right? A big thank you to Level 6 for stepping up and offering to help us celebrate for this one year. Um, in addition to Level 6, PNH has also stepped in, and they've offered a few limited edition PNH hoodies and t-shirts as well, so we've added those to the prize closet too. Remember, your first question, where did the Level 6 name come from? That's the question for this episode, and for the next three episodes, you'll find another question somewhere in the episode to answer. It might be about that episode or another episode, and if you've got the correct answer to that or any of the four questions, send your answer to me at john at paddlingtheblue.com, along with your name, mailing address, and email address. 
Each correct answer will go into a random drawing where one lucky winner will receive a $100 gift card toward the level 6 gear of your choice, and other lucky winners will earn the limited edition P&H swag. You have until February 28, 2021 to get your answers to me, and we'll announce the winners on our show that releases on March 15, 2021. For our next episode, we're going to make our way back to Cornwall to talk to Erin Bastian. And Erin's going to join me to share her tales of paddling the Mediterranean along with sharing some really exciting news for her future. So thanks as always for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.